The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Character for me. I'm going to skip some verses. Yeah. Now, the reason is, last week we looked very in-depth at standing on the promises. We talked about the importance of getting God's word, being close with God, being in his word, understanding him glorying in him, and then allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us to his promises that we can stand on through all situations. And it only makes sense that prayer is tied very directly to that. And so I want to skip to verses 6 and 7 this morning and look at the, this whole idea of prayer and how it marries together with standing on the promises. Verses 2 through 5 deal with uh, unity And we may go back to that next week, but I think it's very important for us to go there this morning. However, before we do, I want to go to a very tough portion of Scripture. And I want to do this because I want to be sure that you and I have no misunderstandings about coming to Christ and standing on His promises and being able to pray. Because the reality is, while the gospel is free, it will cost you everything. Now, you might say, well, Craig, I mean, why do you have to do that? I mean, these verses are flowing nice. I'm growing from them. Well, it's because it's my job. It's the role of a pastor and preacher. In fact, I think probably one of the verses that most wonderfully sums up the role is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. I love that last part. But you see, when he says, brothers, admonish the idle, in the Greek, idle means the undisciplined. It's for those people who are lax in being in the Word of God. It's those people who are undisciplined in their prayer life and walking closely with God. And then when things happen and they need God and they need His promises to stand on, they're simply lost. And so we have to admonish the idol. We have to encourage the faint-hearted. The ones that when things come into life, they just they collapse. They're faint They don't have the wherewithal to hang to God's promises. And then to help the weak, the ones who are easily put down. And then be patient with all of them. I like the way Hebrews 12.12 says it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And boy, does that not describe us from time to time? And so I want us to really settle in on something because if you and I are genuinely going to have a clear understanding about standing on promises and prayer, we have to be extremely honest with ourselves. And I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 14 for just a moment before we get into Philippians. The setting here is that Jesus has been doing all kinds of miracles. He has been walking The people have been following him. He's been healing the sick. In fact, if you recall in our study in John in the very last chapter, it said that Jesus, if if they recorded or wrote down all the miracles Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books to hold it. So we have an understanding that, that Jesus was just doing miracle after miracle after a miracle. 
And so there were those that were following him with deep devotion. There was others that were excited to what he was doing, and that there were others looking for a sideshow. And it's estimated at this time there was probably thousands of people following him. And all of a sudden, he abruptly stops, and he addresses the people in Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. He says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now the disciples are going, whoa, whoa, Jesus, they're all going to run away. And that's precisely why Jesus did it. Because he was separating out true disciples from the hangers-on. Modern church growth gurus who write and tell you how to build churches have coronaries at this passage. Because Jesus was very straightforward. Verse 33 says, So there, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now you might scratch your head and say, I don't get this. The Bible says we're to honor our mother and father. The Bible says we're to love our enemies. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus, what are you saying here? What the reality of this passage and what Jesus is saying is, if he isn't absolutely number one in your life, even before those that are the closest to you, you cannot be his disciple. That is tough words. Whoever does not bear his own cross, and of course the idea here is when Christ died on the cross, he, you died with him. Your sins were nailed to that cross, washed away. And it cost you everything to give up and to put him first in all your life. Now let me give you a statement that might best put this in a proper perspective. The one who issues the call, sets the terms. We're not allowed to negotiate the terms. The gift is free, but there is a cost. Jesus never tried to manipulate the crowds. He never tried to manipulate decisions. He was anything but seeker-sensitive. And what we find that we need to do, especially when we're going through the book of Philippians with all its amazing promises and all the wonderful things it lays out to us, is to stop and remind ourselves there is a cost. Jesus isn't a genie that you just run to and run to in a time of need, rub a lamp and expect a verse to pop out to get you through. He demands your heart. He demands your total devotion. He demands everything about you. So either you are all in 
or you're not. So before we get into prayer this morning, we need to ask ourselves a very honest question. Am I a genuine disciple? Is he at the center of everything I do? So as we move into prayer, we understand that it's a doctrine that few people have a real grasp on, especially those who don't know the Lord. It's totally misunderstood by non-believers, and it's also misunderstood by many who name the name of Christ. And the problem may be traced to the fact that so few persons actually have this kind of deep, abiding relationship with Christ. Does prayer change things, or does prayer change people? Does God change His mind as a result of prayer, or does God move us to pray? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Who can pray? How do you pray? Why should a person pray? And in any gathering of believers, you're always going to have variant opinions about this whole concept. But in the fourth chapter of Philippians, we find two verses that really encapsulate what real prayer is. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything. In other words, stop worrying about everything. Now, you know what I find the greatest reason for anxiety is? It's when you're not walking with the Lord, and when you need Him, you're afraid He's going to look the other way. That's really the cause for great anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So please understand that the reason I start with such tough passages leading into this is because of our first point. Prayer is for Christians only. What is prayer? Prayer is talking with God. And the place to begin in any true definition of prayer is the fact that it is for believers only. Paul did not write his words about prayer to the pagans in Philippi. He didn't write them to pagans around the world. In fact, in Philippians 1.1, he says, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. This means that prayer is exclusively for Christians, those who have given Christ their lives, who have accepted His finished work on Calvary as payment for their sins. It is the means by which an empty soul that has been touched by Jesus Christ can be thrust beneath the life-giving fountain of God's grace, can bask in His goodness, and can enjoy the supernatural refreshment of a wonderful God. Prayer is the Christian's antidote for anxiety. Now, I know that something called prayer is often uttered billions of times around the world by millions of people who aren't Christians, but this is not true prayer. Scores of non-Christian people in the East spend the better part of their day spinning prayer wheels. New Agers finger prayer beads. Still others cry out to God in the midst of calamities. And others give themselves to lives of meditation. But unless you're a child of God, this isn't real prayer. And why isn't this real prayer? Quite simply, prayer, the only prayer 
that God hears and answers is the one that is made through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone provides access to his presence. So if you're at odds with the Son of God, you've got a problem. This truth was taught very clearly by Jesus in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not say that he was one of several ways to come to the Father. He said he was the way. And lest there be any misunderstanding, he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And this means that no prayer offered to God apart from the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will ever reach the throne of God the Father. Now, you may be quick to say, well, what about a non-Christian crying out for salvation? Well, if they're truly understanding, then they are crying out because of and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that prayer is through his Son. And there are more passages in the Bible that talk about how prayer isn't heard than there are those that talk about prayer being answered. And God definitely says he will not answer the prayers of anyone who does not come to faith in his Son. So, have you ever tried to pray and feel distant or unrelated? Do you ever pray and feel like your prayers aren't getting there? Could it be that you've never dealt with the reality of the first thing, and that is coming to Christ? It will only be removed by Jesus Christ. And you need to acknowledge that he died for you, that when he came and took on the form of man and walked this earth and went to that cross and died a brutal death, it was for you he died there. And that he made a way for you to be restored to a full relationship with the Godhead. Now, the other aspect that befalls us here is what's for Christians, and that is unconfessed sin hinders prayer. Now, we must add that although it is true that God does not hear the prayers of non-Christians, quite often he doesn't hear the prayers who are harboring, harboring sin in their hearts. The Bible points out that prayers are often not heard because of these unconfessed sins. David said in Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would have not listened. Isaiah adds in 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Do these verses describe your prayer life? Are, are there things in your lives that are hindering? You're trying to find verses to be able to stand on the promises of God. You're trying to pray and cultivate this relationship, but you're hanging on to sin. One of the greatest blessings for, the, for you then is found in a verse that most of us have memorized, 1 John 1, 9, that says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True confession is true repentance. And true repentance leads to open communication with the Father. And that's why it's so critical for you and I to be walking closely with the Lord at all times. 
In a normal life, we may know people well before we are able to converse freely with them. You may have friends that you can talk about family, the weather, and various issues in the world. But unless you have a deep relationship with them, you don't talk about deep personal matters. And it's the same way with Christ. In order for you to vent your heart openly and to have a deep grasp of who He is and what He is doing through you, you need to know Him personally. You need to have a relationship with Him and be a true disciple that Luke 14 is talking about. And this is what draws us to Him in a mighty way. It's the same in our relationship with God, as having as it is with a good relationship. The deeper you know Him, the more open you are with your heart. And instead, we must confess our sins. We must turn from our wicked ways and get alone with the Father and confess and clear the way for Him to work through us. And then this brings us to another aspect which is so critical, and that's intercessional prayer. Now, everything we've talked to up to this point has to do with us at the center of the situation. But if you know what prayer is, you know that prayer is interceding for others. A husband and wife can have a very deep relationship, but if it's very deep, they share concerns with friends and others, and they lift them up. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. As we meet with God in prayer in the morning or in the evening or any time through the day, our hearts need to be open to the needs and prayer for others. This is why we have on Wednesday night prayer meeting here. The requests, the prayer requests that you put in the offering plates, we take to the throne of God on Wednesday night and spend deep, heartfelt prayer on your behalf. But it's also important for us to understand that when Jesus was on earth, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, not a house of preaching or a house of worship or a house of music, a house of prayer. But can you tell me one aspect of the church today that is sadly and grossly lacking? It's corporate prayer. We are so busy as a people that the idea of coming together is, is almost impossible. Yet that's where the power of the church lies. Praying for each other. Praying an intercessory prayer for others. Cultivating that relationship. The prayer meeting helps us to cultivate a personal relationship which helps each one of us become the true disciples he's talking about. The group of people that meet on Wednesday night have a very unique relationship. We encourage one another. We support one another. We pray for each other. And oh, how great that would be if all of us could be there. Now, I'm not legalistic. Don't get me wrong. I know people work in it, and I'm not trying to be someone who's casting spurs, and I'd never do that. But to come together and pray as a group of people is absolutely critical in the life of a church. And that's important for us to understand. Let me give you a kind of an illustration of what we're talking about here. More than a generation ago, a man named Hotchkiss was a missionary in Nigeria where he spent 40 years of his life. One morning, he was heading to services at a village, and he was running very late. And there was a large plain that separated him from this village. Now, in Nigeria, it's a known fact that you don't walk across wide-open plains for fear of being stampeded by wild animals. 
And so the nationals know that you hug the edge of this near the tree so that if it does happen, you can get behind trees and protect yourself. The problem is Hotchkiss was way behind. And so he uttered a prayer and he headed out straight across the plain. Sure enough, he's halfway across and he begins to hear the sound of hoofs thundering behind him. And he turns to see a hundred or more rhinos coming. And he knows there's no way to get out of the way. And he takes his Bible and he drops to his knees and he clinches his Bible to his chest and he goes, Lord, I'm coming home. And the hoofs got louder and louder and louder and louder. And then all of a sudden they began to fade. And when he got up, he realized he was okay. But around him were hundreds and thousands of hoofprints. And so he thanked God and he moved on and got to his meeting. A couple of years later, a couple from Ohio went to visit him from his home church. And one evening they were having dinner and the husband said, you know, Hotchkiss, he said, I had a weird experience about you. And he began to tell him that a couple of years earlier he had been woken up out of a deep sleep with an overwhelming burden to pray for him. He got down on the edge of the bed on his knees and he prayed for his protection. He didn't know what he was praying for, but he called out to God to protect him and keep him safe. He said it lasted 20 minutes, and the burden was gone. And when Hotchkiss asked him when that was, he said, well, I wrote it in my Bible. He went back and looked. It was the same day and the same hour that he was in the middle of that plane. You and I don't always experience miraculous stories like that, but can I tell you the truth from the Word of God? When you are upholding someone else, God is there. And it's the Spirit of God putting it at your heart. So the more you and I cultivate this prayer for each other and the prayer for needs and the prayer for all that's going on in our world, that's where God is at the center. Now, someone may argue quickly, well, God could have saved Hodgkiss without that man praying. For certain, he could. But it's true in all the scriptures that God uses his people in prayer. God uses his people in his ministry. And years later, the man was able to share in this blessing that was Hotchkiss. And then together they, they glorified God and a joyous thing that God had done. Are you close enough in your prayer life to God that you can be used to pray for someone else in a time of need? Are you staying close enough to God to pray for yourself and me or a loved one? It's important for us to grasp this reality. And then, of course, we come to the reality of presenting our requests to God. Prayer is not only talking with God, and it's not only intercession for others. Prayer is the opportunity to present your own needs before God. And Psalm, or Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God invites us to place our most earnest requests before Him. This is God's cure for anxiety. You place these requests before Him, standing on the very promises that He's laid before you, and it is the ultimate cure for anxiety. Because when you're a true disciple walking close with God, following the leading of the Spirit, and He leads you to verses that you can stand on, your anxiety is marginalized. Christians are troubled with many things. 
You may be troubled with your work, your family, your future, money, our country, the upcoming election, you name it. We're troubled with a lot of things. But it's the peace of God that directs us through these things. And and let me just step out of character for a minute here, and let me just comment on the need to pray for the election. This isn't like me to talk about this, but I've heard so many varying views from Christians about how bad the candidates are and how doomed we are and so doomed that I'm not going to vote and all this kind of stuff. Let me just point out an Old Testament thing for you. God called Elijah to anoint Jehu to be the king of Israel. Jehu was a most ungodly man. He was far more ungodly than our candidates today, trust me. Yet God used him to eradicate Baal worship from Israel. Stop worrying about the election. Get on your knees and pray as the Spirit leads you. He is in control. The Bible says that leaders are ordained from God. And sometimes he uses guys that we wouldn't expect him to. So rest in the Lord and trust him. We're troubled about so many things, and it's difficult for us, but he's still on the throne. Now, I want to clarify something here, and I want you to notice what this verse doesn't say. It doesn't say that we shall necessarily receive everything we ask as we ask it. You might expect the verse to say, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he will give you exactly what you request when you request it. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there are two critical things here that we need to note. As a result of a right relationship with God and following his leading in prayer, two things that, are, that we see here. Number one, we get the peace of God. It doesn't say God will encourage your peace. It doesn't say that God will give you a good word to help you through it. You get his peace. Imagine that. The peace of an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God of the universe, it's his peace deposited in your heart. Peace doesn't get any better than that. Secondly, he will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Literally, it says he will put a garrison, a guard around your heart to keep your mind in Christ. So you are getting the mind of Christ as well. Not only do you have his peace, but now he gives you his way of thinking. So when you're going through a situation and you are a true disciple and you're standing on the promises and you're laying your prayers before him, he has promised to give you peace and his mind to guard you and guide you through it. And see, that's the great beauty that we have in following the Spirit because he's doing it, not us. He's the one leading us every step of the way. 
And that is what is so critical. Now, our prayers are often an error. We often pray for things that aren't good for us, and God doesn't promise to give us these things. However, God does promise to give us supernatural peace to those who, are their, who have their real needs laid before him. So let me remind you of something that has been prevalent in the book of Philippians, in fact, in every book we've looked at in the last three years, and in fact, from Genesis to Revelation, and you probably know what I'm about to say. It's not about me. It's about glorifying God. I live for his glory, not my dreams. Now, that's hard for some people to grasp. But when you live for his glory, his dreams become your dreams. His goals become your goals. And you recall when Jesus was in the garden and he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. What Jesus was doing was identifying in open clarity that his goals, his will, his heart were in direct line with the Father. And when you and I can claim that and know it, there is no way we can lose. Because no matter what happens, Jesus Christ gets the glory. And that is the very promise that he is trying to provide for you and I if we would open our hearts and open our minds and think clearly and passionately about the purpose of what's happening to us. He is promising the peace that passes all understanding. We only see prayer as a viable approach if it gets me my requests as I want them. But let me remind you of Paul's experience. Do you remember the prayer that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15? Romans 15, he said this in verse 31, 32, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be accepted to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Well, how did Paul's requests fare? How were they answered? Well, first, Paul fell into the hands of unbelievers, and he spent two years in prison in Caesarea as a result, even though his life was spared. Secondly, we have no information about the second request. That is, that service might be received willingly by the saints in Judea. But there's no reason to think that Paul received any warm welcome at all. Finally, we know that Paul's third request, which was, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company, was fulfilled. But only after long delays and much hardship. And when Paul did arrive in Rome, he arrived as a prisoner in chains. Hardly the kind of answer that we'd be looking for. But... God answered, and he answered exactly as Paul indicates in his words about prayer to the Philippians. He answered by giving Paul peace. And this is why Paul could say unabashedly, for me to live is Christ. Think of that the next time you're going through it. To be able to stand there and say, whatever, God, for me to live is Christ. If, I can, if you can be glorified by what I'm going through, praise God, I'm here for you. 
But that attitude only comes from true disciples. That heart is only truly felt and understand, understood by true disciples. That heart is only experienced by those who have gotten God's word, are standing on the promises, and trusting God to lead them in a perfect will and way. It's an amazing thing when you completely surrender. Paul was a true disciple. Are you? Let me close by just referring you back to our passage in Philippians. Four, 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Thank him when the bottom drops out. You can't do anything about it. He has to do it. When I am weak, then am I strong. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you a true disciple? As we go to communion this morning and we reflect on what communion is. The reality that Jesus Christ was so, I don't want to say distraught, but the reality was he put Adam and Eve in the garden and they blew it. But his love for you and I was so deep that he would not wipe Adam and Eve out and start again. He put a plan in place to redeem you. Because he wants you with him for eternity. And we celebrate the day he hung on a cross. And we celebrate the victory that was three days later when he rose from the grave. And we celebrate the reality that because of that unfathomable mercy, I can have my sins wiped away as far as the east is from the west. Have you accepted Christ this morning as your Savior? If you have not, this table's not for you. This table makes no sense for you. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I would ask you not to partake. Because the Bible says partaking unworthily is like partaking damnation to yourself. But if you truly love Christ and you realize what he's done, and you want to be the truest disciple you can be, that you want to stand on his promises and live for him, that you want to be able to pray and know that your heart is right and he will lead you. And take the next few moments as the men come forward and meditate deeply on your heart. If there's any sin in your life, don't let it go past this moment. Confess it before him. Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lay it before him. And as we partake of the bread and the cup, may it be a new time of rededication. Let's pray.
Father, we must confess that at times our hands droop and our knees are weak. We acknowledge that before you. We acknowledge the reality that we don't follow you as we should. But oh, what a blessed truth to know that in spite of our weakness, you are strong. And you are strong right to the finished work on Calvary and to the resurrection to make a way for us to escape. I pray now, Lord, as we partake that our hearts are right and that our focus is squarely on you. We pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts as we partake now in this supper. In Christ's name. Received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As is our custom, let's stand and join hands and we'll close in a hymn. that was provided for each one of us through the cross. And I just pray as we leave here this morning that we would leave with an eye single unto your glory and a true heart being honest with ourselves about our discipleship. May we leave with a new zeal to walk in perfect communion with you that we might bring glory to you. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you.